So today's a really serious chapter, Matthew chapter or Mark chapter 15. Um, so I won't tell like a lot of jokes today or make a lot of snarky comments about things because it's, it really is a serious chapter, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, so I just want to explain some things. I'm not going to go through every part of the chapter just like as in depth because I want to hit on the really important parts and things that sometimes maybe fall through the cracks um, or are misunderstood. So if you will, I'd love for you to take out a pen, a piece of paper, um, something you can write with, take notes on this, because uh, this today, this is the balance of everything our faith hangs on, is the crucifixion, and then when we study about the resurrection, which may be a week or two weeks from now, depending on what we do for Easter. Um, when we study about that, then that's all these two things work together on the balance of what the Christian faith is. So, Mark 15, if you don't have your Bible, you can turn up here, or look up here, you can't turn, but you can look up here at this TV screen, and uh, we'll get started. So, it says, Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. And the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner who the people requested, and a man called Barabbas was in prison with insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And he said, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged, and then he handed him over to be crucified. So just a few notes about this, these first 15 verses. Pontius Pilate uh, was the governor of the province of Judea, where Jerusalem was located. So he was the go-to guy. So there was a time when Jews could just straight up punish people, and like if you did something wrong, they could just kill you because you disobeyed God's laws. But now, since the Roman government had become in charge of the Jewish people and all these different things, the Jews had to have permission from Pontius Pilate or whoever was in the province of where they were to murder somebody or anything like that horrific. Um, they could still like send people to jail and do stuff, but it had to be from Pontius Pilate at this time to be able to do that. So they went to him, asked him all this stuff, and what did the people accuse him of? What does it say? In uh, verse 2 through 5, saying he was God. Okay. Yeah, overthrow Caesar and be a king. He said, you're the king of the Jews. It's like that's what their accusation was. So he was claiming to be king of the Jews is what they were saying. And so they were telling Pilate all these things like he wants to be a king. So why would this upset Pilate or would it upset him? Would he care? Remember, Pilate's not Jewish. What do you think? So he doesn't want a rebellion, so that would be a huge thing. 
Anything else? Okay. <laughs> Let's see. So we'll go on through. So here's some. I'll explain that in a minute. It it would have upset Pilate, but as a non-Jewish person, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal other if he was leading a rebellion. So like when you put the gospels together you can put it's like a puzzle piece. So you can put all the pieces together and kind of fill in segments where the things don't say. So if we look at Luke twenty three verse two, it says, And they begin to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So here's what they were claiming, and here's what they were bringing against Jesus in another section. So this would have been the same time, just told through the eyes of Luke. So it's one, they claimed that he was encouraging people not to pay taxes to Rome, which would have been a huge deal. Jesus never did that, ever, but they accused him of it. Second thing was that he was claiming to be a king, like I said over here. And the third, that it was causing riots, leading a rebellion, or subverting a nation. He was undermining the nation and trying to take it over. So these were the three accusations that they brought before Pilate, but the thing is that none of those were true. Jesus never claimed that he was going to lead an army or like destroy Jerusalem or anything like that, but he did say, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So what those people were talking about was like, he's just going to destroy the temple that's right in Jerusalem and, and just wreck everything. And he was also accused of blasphemy, saying that he was God. So when he would say, like, he's the son of God, that would have been a big deal, especially to the Jewish people. But to Pilate, he really wouldn't have cared about that because he just wasn't Jewish and he didn't care if he were a son of God or whatever. He was just worried about being a king. So, yeah, this would have upset him to a point, but in a way he knew the accusations weren't true. And, like, you can see that through the rest of this chapter. So what I want you to do is, like, draw some comparisons or differences between Jesus's concept of a king and then Pilate's concept of a king. What were they thinking? And we kind of talked about that in past classes. So if you've never been here before, you might not know. But what were, uh, what would Pilate's concept of a king be? They'd probably have to have an army. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I couldn't talk. What else? Army. Think about an earthly king. What do they have? Servants, money. Palaces. Palaces. A lot of power. They had a lot of influence over the people and kind of to direct people where they wanted them to go. And so to Pilate, the idea of someone being raised up as a king would have meant that this dude was trying to take over, raise an army, and try to become like a king. So that was his idea of what a kingdomship would be like, and just like an earthly kingdomship. But what, what was Jesus' idea of a kingdomship? Humble. Humble. What else? Instead of having servants, he was a servant. Humble, instead of having servants, he was a servant, so a servant to other people. Who did he serve? What kind of people did Jesus serve? People he the people what? He served the people he ruled. That he ruled? Yeah. Explain. Just go into... <laughs> he kind of served the people that nobody expected him to serve. Yeah. Like the homeless and the blind, people with diseases. People that nobody wanted, he showed them love Definitely. Is that kind of like, yeah, okay. The people that weren't doing fine. Yeah. Your table's working together. That's okay. I want that. Pep up. So, yeah. So, 
That was, that was his idea. And so to him, this like concept of kingdomship and what he was expecting would have been totally different. Now the Jews expected the same thing. They were waiting on somebody based on the Old Testament scriptures that would rise up, lead a rebellion, lead an army, but they weren't waiting on somebody who was going to serve the poor, serve the sick, and who was going to like help all these lowly people. And so the king, the real earthly king, and what Pilate's mind was is like he's going to be a ruler, but also he doesn't serve anybody. Everybody else serves him. But Jesus said, no, that's not the way it works. Here in my kingdom, I serve everybody else. So their ideas of a kingdomship was like very, very different. Um, and it wasn't what the Jewish people were expecting, and that's part of the reason that they sent him to be crucified. So Pilate was amazed by Jesus' composure, is what it says, because when all these accusations were coming before him, when all these people said things to him and tried to convict him of all these like the three things that we looked at all ago, he just kind of kept his composure and kept everything calm. Like he was okay with people saying things because he knew that the mission had to be completed, that he had to go to the cross, and there was nothing really he was going to say to try and stop him from doing that. And so then he talks about this guy named Barabbas. And so Barabbas had apparently, this dude was part of a rebellion that tried to take over Rome. And so it could have been just like 50 or 100 people who thought they could really kill all the Romans. And so they had this uprising apparently in the past. And Barabbas was one of the guys that helped commit a murder in this. And so it was Jewish custom during the, this, this week, the Passover week, for them to release a prisoner of the people's choosing. So nowhere in the Bible does it talk about this, but it's like proven historically that that's what it used to happen. So there was this uprising, um, and they wanted them to release Barabbas over Jesus, and so that it does. So verse 10, I'll read it again, but I want to talk about this. It says, well, verse 9 and 10, he says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed him Jesus over to him? And so I think other versions say out of self-interest. What does that mean? Like, Why? Yeah, what does he mean by that? No, uh, the the Pharisees and teachers of the law. What does that mean? Pilate probably hasn't missed that one of their main issues with him is that he seems to be kind of setting himself up as another religious leader head. And he seems to be more powerful than there, so it's like, look, the main reason they're bringing him up here is because he's taking over their religion, which I don't care. Mm -hmm. But um, that's why they're trying to accuse him of these other things. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Any other comments about that? I think that, like, <coughs> they had their idea of what they wanted the king to be like. Mm -hmm. So they were the Messiah, and they're like, this doesn't fit, and they will kill him and send another one. Mm, yeah. Just like, they wanted what they wanted for the Messiah, and Jesus wasn't that. Definitely. And both those comments are, like, right on point. So, if you, since we've been looking through this gospel, we see that Jesus has a lot of influence with the people. He's going around, he's healing people, he's making a difference in people's lives, he has huge crowds following them. This is everything that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law wanted. Instead of being, like, they were strict rulers, they got to tell people what to do, and they laid all these heavy laws on other people. 
but what they really wanted was the people's influence, and they wanted people to like, follow them. And so when Jesus came on the scene and started doing his ministry, he just had these huge crowds of people following. I mean, if you look back to the things that we've talked about, for example, like the feeding of the 5,000, well, like we talked about, there's probably more like 12,000 people there if you include women and children. So he had these huge followings of people who just wanted to be with him and be like them. And so to them, they would have greatly envied Jesus because they wanted this influence with the other people. They wanted the influence over the kingdom. And so they were filled with all this jealousy and anger. One, because this king didn't look like what they thought it was supposed to look like, but also because they wanted his position and they wanted to take him over. And he was like changing the hearts and minds of other people, like you said. And, and like in a way, he was leading a rebellion in a way against what the customary Jewish feelings and laws were supposed to be like. And so they were super jealous and envious uh, of Jesus and um, what he was doing. So then in verse 15, it says that wanting to satisfy the crowd, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. So the Sanhedrin, the people that had stayed up all the night before and had brought Jesus before Pilate, this was a group made up of, I think, 71 Jewish, uh, like really big religious, religious leaders. I don't know how to like compare this to... Anyways, they were super influential. They had a lot of power in the Jewish um, community and they were like the top guys so if you had a problem you would go to them and they were the people that can convict you they were like the Jewish court the Jewish law people and so they had a lot of political influences as well because of their position as all these high priestly rulers and people wanted to know what they had to say so here's the problem Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowd because if Pilate didn't hand Jesus over to be crucified like the Sanhedrin and all the people wanted him to, then they would have went to Caesar, the guy above Pilate. They would have told Caesar, hey, um, Pilate didn't crucify a guy that was committing treason. They would have told him that. And so if Caesar got word that his the dude under him hadn't convicted somebody that committed treason of the state and treason deserves death, then what would have happened was Pilate's position would have been taken away from Caesar and Pilate never would have been able to go up in the ranks. Does that make sense? Okay, that was just a lot of words for me. That's like a run-on sentence. And so that's, that's what the problem was. So he wanted to satisfy them because he knew that if he didn't, there was going to be a problem and his position would be taken away. He would never have a chance to be king. He would never have a chance to rule. He would never have a chance to work his way up in the ranks. And more than likely, not convicting somebody else of treason who deserved it, then Pilate would have been convicted of treason and he would have been crucified or killed as well. So there was a lot on the line for him. But in a way, Pilate tries to get Jesus out of it. And there's different things in the other Gospels that talk about that. So it talks about flogging here. So pro pro probably, and I think you can look in the Gospel of Luke where it says this, I didn't write it down, Pilate probably hoped that flogging would be enough to satisfy the crowd because flogging was a brutal thing, like really awful, and most of the time like mo majority of the time people didn't survive Roman floggings. Like they would just die on the stake. So what would happen would be, say there was a flogging going on right here, we're not going to do this, but um, I mean we're just not. So I get fired. That's the reason why. So there would be like a big stake on the ground, a big piece of wood, and they would tie the person's hand around it so they couldn't pull the rope over it and they couldn't get out of it. And they'd be put on their knees and then a big, huge Roman dude, some, like a strong guy in their military, would grab this with these leather ropes attached to it. At the end of the leather ropes, there would usually be pieces of glass or small bones um, or pieces of metal or rocks in some way and they would tie it in 
inside the leather. And so when they whipped people, it wasn't just these straps that were hitting you. It was also like these metal beads and these pieces of bone that were cutting into your flesh. And so by Jewish tradition, somebody, like you couldn't whip somebody more than 40 times. Like you had to stop at 40. That was Jewish tradition. By Roman tradition, you could whip somebody as many times as you wanted to. So if you wanted to go up in the hundreds, if you think they deserved that, if the guy was just having a really good day and wanted to whip you, he could do that. Like, he, he didn't have to stop until somebody just told him to. Like, if Pilate told him to stop, he'd have to stop. So, it doesn't say how many times he was whipped. It just says that he was whipped, but we don't know how many times. And that's why most people didn't survive floggings, because you think about all this cutting into your back, into your flesh. Like, so much blood coming out of you that people just bled out right there on the stake. And so, this, this was the huge thing that he had to go through. And so Pilate, I think Luke says that, you can fact check me or whatever, hoped that this flogging would be enough to satisfy everybody and just say, okay, you've done enough to him, just let him go. But that didn't work, and it just went on. So verse 16, after this, it says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. So uh, the praetorium is this palace area. Um, where people would go to be convicted. And so usually the conviction took place inside the temple, inside the praetorium, inside the palace. But they did it outside the palace that day because of some Jewish customs. And so it says they put purple robe on him. So if you go back and look at ancient history, it can be proven now that purple is a really hard color to come by. Just the dye and the stuff that had to go into the process of making it, it was really, really um, hard to make. You remember maybe in the story of Acts, there was a woman named Lydia that sold purple. Well, more than likely, she was very wealthy because she made purple clothing and sold it to royalty and people that were very rich. So it was a royal color. Um, I literally almost put on a purple shirt today, but then I was like, no, that just looks bad, I'm a hypocrite. So I had to take it off. Um, but purple is hard to come by. And so what they were doing by putting purple robes on him and draping him in, in these purple robes is they, was mo they were mocking him by him saying that he was a king. They were putting the stuff over him and say, if you're a king, you deserve priestly clothes. You deserve royal clothes. So they just put purple clothes on him um, and mocked him. And so what the Roman guards were doing was such a great demonstration of insensity and cruelty to Jesus. Like, hitting him, and when they put the crown of thorns on his head, it said that they hit him with a staff. And so each time they hit him with a staff, it would just drive the thorns deeper and deeper into his skull. I mean, everything they did to him was just cruel and, like, unusual punishment. It was torture, because Jesus did not have any kind of opportunity to get out of what they were doing. So this, would, this is like a map of what it would have looked like back then in Jerusalem. Some of you may have been to Jerusalem, had a chance to go to Israel. Catherine, my wife, has. I've never been. I'm a little jealous. Um, so here's the palace. And so there's two, two arguments about where the praetorium may have been. It would have been right here, but more than likely it was right here. And this is where Jesus would have been condemned. So when he was convicted and they decided that he was going to be crucified, what would have happened 
was he would have been led out from this gate outside of the city walls and then to a place called Gagatha and that's where he'd have been crucified and buried. So we're going to get to another part of the section but just think about like this is a, a pretty good walk, pretty fair walk and then up here you get in like to this hill country so you have to walk up a hill as well in order to get to Golgotha. So that's what it would have looked like if you like want a visual representation of, of what that may have been. Um, so verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, and Rufus was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him, and dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Verse 27, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He said, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So there was this dude, Simon from Cyrene. Honestly, he was just a random Jew in town for the Passover. Like, no significance really, other than that's what it was. And so when Jesus started out carrying his cross, we know this from the book of John, he started out, he was doing fine, but just from like the, the flogging and the beating and all the stuff he had had to go through the night and the day before, he needed help afterwards because it was just so heavy to carry. I mean, like these things were over a hundred pounds easily that he had to carry up this place. So he would have needed some help um, after all that he had gone through. And so they picked this guy just randomly from the crowd and say, hey, come help this guy carry your cross up. You're a Jew. Help, help your king of the Jews. So Golgotha, it's Aramaic for the word skull. And then if you also hear like Jesus went to Calvary, things like that, there's a lot of songs we sing that say the word Calvary. Calvary comes from the word Calva, which is Latin for skull. And so it's not really has anything to do significantly with like death, even though it's where people were killed. But tradition has it that the place of the crucifixion kind of looked like a skull where it would have happened. Did you see that in Jerusalem? Like, did they point that out? Well, like, <clears throat> the place where they think Jesus was crucified, like, you know, the skull of the they built the church on top of it, so you can't really see that there, but there's another place called, um, the, what's that? You know, you know what that? You know what about? No. There's another place where it's <coughs> preserved, and it's another possible place where Jesus could have been crucified, and the only reason they think that it could be that is because it looks like a skull. So if you go there, you can literally see, like, a skull. Mm. That's probably more than likely not what happened, but it's just a better feel of it because the other place is huge. And there's so many of it. Yeah, and there's a lot of people there, so yeah. that place just—if you look at it, the um, it just looks like a school. Mm. So they're like, "Oh, this might be here." Yeah, so it's <laughs> possible. There's a team there that no one was in—an empty tomb. Could have just been. Could have been anything, but. Yeah, and it could have been where the church is too, but over years and years of people like building churches on top of places where they shouldn't build churches, it, it happens. So, um, 
So it didn't have really have anything to do with death, but it sounds deathly, other than it just looked like a place where it would happen, at the skull. So they named it those names. So, verse 33. Um, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, I'm going to butcher this, Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabathani, which means, I can say this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. That would have been um, like a, a, a sedative. Wine vinegar would have made him like help him not to feel as much pain. So they said, "Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him." He said, and with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Verse thirty-eight: The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood in front there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, "Surely this man was the Son of God." When women were watching from a distance, oh, some women were watching from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs, and many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Uh, so, just in case you don't know, Jesus was on the cross for six hours before he died. Like, a long time. So, 9 to 12, 12 to 3. Like, a long time hanging up there on a wooden beam with nails through your hands and uh, just being flogged and everything else. And uh, he, sa he says this thing um, in this passage that might not make any sense. It comes from uh, Psalms chapter 22. You can look in verse 2 and it says that. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is really easy to skip over. And it's not, so I want to explain this. Uh, when you read this, it's for me. I mean, I read this for a long time. Why have you forsaken me? I always thought, God, why did you let me die? Like, why did you let this happen? But that wasn't what he was talking about. It wasn't about death. It was about something else. So God cannot be where sin is. Like, God and sin can have, cannot join together in any way, in no way. I mean, you think back to the Garden of Eden where they sinned, where Eden was a perfect place where God dwelled with people. But when they sinned, God kicked them out. And so Jesus had never sinned before. But in this moment when Jesus was on the cross, because He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect Lamb. In this moment, Jesus embodied every single sin, every sin you've committed, every sin I've committed, every sin that everybody has committed. He embodied it on the cross at this moment. And it, what that happened was that it separated from Him from God because for the first time in His life, Jesus had taken on sin and now God couldn't be where He was. And so you think about this, in 33 years, Jesus had lived 33 years, and this is the first time that He didn't have a relationship with His Father because God can't be where sin is. And so, in, in this moment, he, he felt what, what, what hell would be like. Because in this moment, He embodied the, what the presence of God wouldn't be like in your life. I mean, that's what hell is. It's like not having any sense of the presence of God in your life. That's, that's what it is. And so, Jesus took on this feeling of just separation from God because He embodied all of the sin. Um, so it says with a loud cry, uh, that he, he breathed out his last. This was a cry of victory, not a cry of pain, because now, finally, everything in, embodied in, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, everything that you read about from Genesis to this point, it was led up to this moment. This is what it was for. It's like from the beginning, 
when man failed, this plan was always in place for it to take over. And so now, when you go through all the passages, when you read all the prophecy in the Old Testament, when you look at people waiting for a coming king, finally, in this moment, this is where it happens. And so it's not a, not a, a cry of, of death. It's a cry of victory because now it's finally happened. And Jesus has succeeded. And, and a little bit, spoiler alert, he come, overcomes death. I mean, he just gets raised it up, so it's not like a bad thing. But this was a cry of victory because now the mission had been completed. Everything that he was sent on earth to do had finally come true. And then three days later, what we're going to see in next week or two weeks from now is that he's going to be raised from the dead. If you go to church next week, you're going to hear it anyways. Surprise. So there you go. Um, Easter, in case you didn't know. Uh, so this says that he turned, what this happened, the curtain torn in two. And that's kind of like, poor curtain, what happened? Um, so there was in the temple in Jerusalem, like in the city gate. So let me go back to this. Forgive me. So in the temple... Well, sorry. Yeah, right here in this temple would have been a curtain. And so there's a lot of things that had to go on in the temple that had to be built to like exact forms and all this other stuff. But in the middle of the temple was this curtain. And so there was a place for like, if, uh, oops, if you and I were there, sorry. Yeah, if you and I were there, there was a place where like regular people would hang out. But then there was a place where like the high priest could go. And so there was one high priest, and what happened every year is um, he went through this, this curtain. And so this curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. It's not that big of word change, but there's a big difference to where it, what it meant. And so, oh man, let me get that turned. Yeah, it's lagging. Whatever. Um, so before Jesus, somebody had to enter the temple in order to be in the presence of God. God dwelt in a temple, and so every year the high priest was permitted to pass through the veil, through this curtain, in order to make atonement for Israel's sin. So they would offer, offer sacrifices. So this one dude, this high priest, was in charge of all of Israel's sins by going through into the most holy place, making a sacrifice to God, being in the presence of God. And then when he walked through that curtain, he was just in God's presence and he could do that. And so what the curtain signified before Jesus' death, what it was saying was that man is separated from God. Because man could be on one side of the curtain, but God was on the other side of the curtain. And only if you were like a really, really holy person could you get in contact and, and be in the presence of God. And so that's what the curtain symbolized. So what does it mean, you answer this, that the veil has been torn? There's no more separation from God. So when Jesus died, now everybody can experience the presence of God in their lives. And this is what it was saying, because God, or Jesus came to make that way for us through His death and resurrection, is for us to be able to have the presence of God inside us. And so now what God is saying through this and through this action is like, God doesn't dwell in temples, God doesn't dwell in buildings any longer like He had for a long time. Like he lived there and, and, and had his presence there. It's like God no longer dwells in, peop or in temples, he dwells in people. And that's where it takes place. It's like God can be in people now. And so when that curtain broke, it was signifying a whole new relationship with God that you and I get to experience now because instead of having to go to Jerusalem every year and go inside the temple and walk through a curtain and be in the presence of God because we're in a certain building, it's not like that anymore because now we can have the presence of God living inside of us right now. And so that's what the whole significance of the veil was, the whole significance of the curtain. So look at verse 42. It says, It was preparation day. 
that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, it's going to be important, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, because it usually takes a longer time for people to die when they're crucified. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some, some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So, what was this Joseph of Arimathea a member of? What does it say? Council. Okay. What council? Why is that important? Yeah. They were the ones that sent Jesus to die. And so, what's happened to this dude is that he's had a huge heart change. Now, the thing is that this Joseph wasn't a member uh, he, he didn't um, consent to the death of Jesus. If you go back and look at Luke's account of this whole thing in verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 51, Joseph didn't have any part in condemning Jesus to die. He like, wasn't at those meetings. He wasn't a part of it. So somewhere about seeing Jesus' life and seeing him change all these people and seeing what he came to do, do Joseph had had a heart change in all this. And now, instead of crucifying him, he's taking Jesus' body down and putting it tube for a proper burial. And so like, this, the heart change that's happening to this man is amazing. And this would have been a big deal because in doing this and taking Jesus' body down, the people that all of his friends had just crucified, this is going to separate him from the Jewish council. And so we really don't hear much more about Joseph other than this, but this was a huge deal um, because he was part of the people that convicted Jesus. He was grouped into those people. So, big question. You talk about this with me. Why a cross? Why did it have to be on a cross? Yeah, so for like, that time, for sure. Because your body's like just hanging there and you're kind of just like slowly, it's like all the weight and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely it's the worst like, day. Totally way. vulnerable, I would think. There's no way to hide. And, you know. Yes, for sure. Well, it's got to be a And also, I feel like it's on display for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. So, so definitely. It would be kind of shameful. It was definitely that. Definitely. For sure, he was just hung up there. More than likely, he was naked, exposed in, every, in front of everybody at that point. It's also a criminal or traitor's death. It's a criminal or traitor's death, so it's painful, it's shameful, it's a criminal's death. Any other thoughts? I feel like there wouldn't be a question that he died. Huh? I feel like there wouldn't have been a question that he actually died. It was final? Because it was final. Because people don't come down and get crucified. You don't hear stories. People are like, oh, he's crucified, but he actually still lived. It was something else that might have been. He could have Yeah, they wanted his death to be final? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Any other thoughts about that? Maybe. Yeah, it was. Um, so all those are correct, like by far, and they all are. But there's one specific thing that I want to look at. So uh, it says um, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, you could write this down, important verse. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And so, if you will, like I just want you to read this for yourself. So turn to your Bible in Deuteronomy 21, or your phone, or whatever you have. And then verse 22 and 23. Yeah, y'all haven't been to Deuteronomy in a while, have you? Ain't been reading your Bibles? Okay. It's hard to find. But it's really important. Hey, when you turn to your Bibles in this, like, just underline or highlight this verse because it is so important to what eventually happens to Jesus. And this is like from the beginning. This, Moses wrote this down so long ago. But this is like foreshadowing Jesus' death. It says in verse 22, it says, If a man guilty of a capital offense, treason, for example, is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, he must not leave his body on the tree overnight. That's why Joseph took it down. So it was still during the day when he took it down. Be sure to bury him on that same day. And here's the, here's the kicker. Because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. He's under the curse of God. You must not desecrate the land of your Lord, your God is giving you as an inheritance. So the whole point, tracing back even to Deuteronomy in this law, is like if you're hung on a pole, like Jesus was, like a wooden stick, you have become a curse by God. And so in this moment when we see God calling out to Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, He embodies everybody's sin, but also in that moment, He becomes a curse to the land because of the way that He was killed. And so all this is leading up to Jesus' death. So, I mean, it just, you just see the pattern throughout the whole Bible of things that's happening. That's just like one small example. There's so much prophecy that goes on into this. But just the, the powerfulness is like he became a curse for us in order for us to go to heaven. And it all happened in this moment when he was hung on the cross. Like it just came down to this. So that's the end of the chapter. Um, it's not the end of the story, I promise. Um, as you'll hear somewhere next week. I don't know if it'll be here or not. But um, everything of your Christian faith, if you're a Christian, I don't, I don't know if everybody here is. If you're a Christian, everything about your faith hangs on the balance of Jesus' death. It says, um, uh, I forgot, anyways, but everything hangs on this. It's like Jesus died for you. And all of your sins, all your mistakes, all of your addictions, all the things that you feel guilty of doing afterwards were taken up on a cross and you were forgiven of that. And it says that Jesus became a curse for you in order for you to have eternal life with God. God killed His Son for you so that you could have fulfillment, so you could have life, and so that one day you can be in heaven with Him. And it all hangs on what we read today. So, I, I just want to encourage you, because I make a huge mistake of a lot, continually go back to the story. Like, don't wait April of every year to hear the story again, because this is what it all hangs on. And people are going to ask you, like, what's the big deal about Jesus' death? What's the crucifixion about? And, and this is it. And there's so much that goes into it. And it's more than just something we should read every April. It's something that we should really just embody every day. Um, but I'm guilty of not doing that. So that's just my encouragement to all of us to do that. So I want to pray together and then we'll head out. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for waking us up. Thank you for another day where we have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins because of the story that we read today. We thank you for your son who didn't rebel when he was accused, who um, 
was led like a lamb to the slaughter and just embodied sin for us and became a curse for us so that one day we can have life, Lord. Sometimes it is so hard to understand and, and fully feel um, this story. But God, I just pray you convict us by this and help us to bring our sin to the light and know that Jesus is the one who can forgive it because of what happened on the cross. I thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for being willing to send your own son to die for our sins and to give us the blessing of eternal life through your son's death, Lord. Help us to go to the story regularly. Help us to make it a part of our life and help us to find our identity in the cross, knowing that we died to ourselves so that we can live for you. We thank you so much for your love for us. Um, convict us, Lord, of what we need and, and bring things to light so that we can live uh, more fully for you. Thank you so much for all your blessings, and most of all for your son. And it's in his name that we pray together. Amen.